else wants to read it. Dick had offered to read it, but he is in the hospital this morning. Our Texas Blessed Day comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. He writes, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have also given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that they live and they love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Let us go to God in prayer. Divine mystery, God of wonder, we come to you this morning with hearts full, seeking, yearning, hoping, loving, praying. We're coming to you again, grieving once again. May these words provide comfort and direction as we move forward today and in the coming days, again as individuals, as a community, as a church, as a nation. I begin with the same prayer I offer before I preach every morning, that you once again let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our collective hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Open our ears to hear this word and your <coughs> voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our understanding in unimaginable ways so that we may continue to serve you today and always. Amen. Amen. I promise you I'm going off script at some point, so no promises today. This is the seventh or last Sunday of the seven weeks of Easter time. And for those of you that know I preach lectionary, lectionary is weird, folks. You get four or five choices of text. You kind of just follow it throughout the year. It's what creates the colors and the seasons. It tells the story as we travel through the biblical narratives, right? Let me tell you, Revelation was one of the choices. And it was 2219 was one of them. It was kind of one of the, they were parsed out verses. Here is one of the choices this week. If anyone reads any part of this book, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. You know what I'm not preaching on this morning? Because <laughs> we weren't going to preach on the whole book of Revelation. Y'all would have killed me. Or at least told me not to preach next Sunday, maybe. So, 
I think the Bible and lectionary is just this weird kind of dance, right? So we're preaching again from John. Poetically, there's one more week of Eastertide than there is of Lent. He's with them just a little longer in this story. And this is the fourth of four weeks of exploring Jesus' teachings about faith and discipleship and living in intimacy or indwelling with a God that loves us so much, so deeply. This Sunday is most of the time celebrated as Ascension Sunday, marking the risen Jesus' departure after 40 days of literally dwelling with the community of his disciples, reassuring them, living with them, eating with them. He went into the upper room in one of the Luke versions, asking for food, showing them the marks on his hands, saying, can I have some fish? Next week is what? Next week. <laughs> Ugh, the two people that always answer. Next week is what, y'all? Okay, what's that? Right, it sets us on fire. Right, okay. And what color do we wear next week? Red. Y'all, y'all got this. Okay, so we're going to light this church on fire with our energy for the new life that we are breathing into this space and out in the world, co-creating with the Holy Spirit. Right, because that's the tradition, and that's how the new, and what happened in Pentecost? Well, the first Pentecost, what was the thing? There you go. Tongues, right? So John 17 is Jesus' prayer that concludes his farewell discourses. Now, to be a stickler about this, we call it Ascension Sunday, but this prayer in the Bible actually happens before he's arrested and goes to the cross. So he's really assuring them that he's going to be okay and he's leaving them before his before his death, before the resurrection even, if we're talking about the historical conversation that's happening here. So he's, he's assuring the distraught disciples that his departure doesn't mean abandonment, but a deeper, more meaningful relationship of indwelling. He's still with them. The prayer continues and culminates this reassurance, and Jesus simply and seamlessly pivots from addressing his companions to addressing God. So he's talking to his friends, and then all of a sudden he's talking to God on behalf of his friends. It's this beautiful, loving shift. He prays for protection and sanctification of his beloved disciples. His petition are simultaneously words of encouragement for them. And for who else? So if we love this book and we, we know that he's talking to them, who else is he praying for? There you go, Melody. Who? Us. Right. If he's praying for them, he is also praying for us as contemporary disciples who also have God indwelling in us. Jesus expands his prayer to include not only the disciples present with him, but in, and I have it bolded in my sermon, but all those who will believe in me through their word. So, I mean, he names us in this, right? Which is to say the cascading generations of disciples all the way down to our church. 
and the churches across town and across the world and my grandmother's church and folks that don't believe the same things as us, but Jesus lives in them too. In a sense, this is John's version of his Gethsemane prayer in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we know that John is different from those. His last prayer before the passion begins in earnest. Rather than an anguished plea to let this cup pass, he is poised and compassionate, saying, I love them, and they love me, and we are one. This kind of contrast between the Gospels, some people think this might be discrediting, Instead, it underlines how they epitomize and encourage a vibrant, searching debate about Jesus' life and work. So let's talk about the scripture here. Jesus is assuring that his distraught disciples that he is by no means abandoning him. And this closing prayer brings this point home. The essence of their anxiety is harm. And he's done it right if we really look at this and think about it. He is going to be harmed, right? Harm is like a low bar for what's going to happen, right? They recognize that the world can be dangerous, full of wolves, and with Jesus, their good shepherd, now leaving them, they are afraid. And his prayer speaks to their sense of vulnerability too, right? If they're going to kill him, what's going to happen to us? They're afraid. It also speaks to intimacy with each other and God, and above all, it is for the sake of what Jesus calls complete joy. In short, the prayer assures them and refocuses their attention on new life of loving unity and joy, which he has called them, and to which through their witness and example, he now calls the whole world. So he doesn't dentist he doesn't denigrate the whole world in this prayer. It's just like it's right before he's going to be arrested, and he doesn't denigrate the world that's going to kill him. He says, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Doesn't this create this crude us and them, this division between followers of Jesus and everybody else? There are at least these reasons to think otherwise. The first is that the world... Well, we're going to talk Greek here. The word world in this prayer is cosmos, right? So God loved the world, which is cosmos. God's fundamental bearing on the world, the divine motive that sets the entire gospel in motion is what? I mean, his motive for the world is love. And that's Jesus' motive for this prayer. Jesus doesn't talk about sin because he's about to be murdered. He doesn't talk about any other motive but love. And I think it's really interesting, and I have a whole bunch of manuscript here, and I'm a manuscript preacher, but I'm going to deviate a little bit. And I think it's as simple as this children's sermon. He comes back to be with those he loved. He reduces, we, we know that Jesus' story takes 613 laws that are considered sinful, right? Levitical laws. We say Ten Commandments, but 613. He reduces them to two. What are those two? Love the neighbor. Love the neighbor. 
love God and love your neighbor, right? And I had my sermon, so I'm just kind of going to joke a little bit here. I never brag on Facebook. I had my sermon written on Wednesday really early this week. I was so proud of myself, so I get it on Facebook. And I'm like, look, y'all, my sermon's done. And, of course, my pastor friends were like, great, good for you. That's, that's wonderful, but the Spirit still works. And up until Friday, I was like, no, this is great. It's a wonderful sermon. I it over. It's a great sermon. And then there was a shooting. And then I had people come into my office. And then I had multiple conversations about, well, isn't that a sin? And if it happens once, that's, that's fine. But the Holy Spirit kind of talks to me in threes, I think. Three people talked to me, and it was, I went to the Poor People's Campaign. We had a contemplative prayer meeting on Friday, and then we were talking about sin. Jesus doesn't talk about sin here. He talks about love. He's about to be murdered by the state and give his life. And he says, you know what? They're me. They're me. And as much as I want to point my finger and say, oh, that's wrong, and you're wrong, and I'm right about my version of whatever it is, how to do dishes at home, or my politics, or arguing with my daughter, ultimately, even Jesus, in his righteousness, as the Son of God, as the triune God, they're me, I'm them. Their generations after them are me and I am them. And the motivation is always love. And so we got to talking at this group, um, I think five of us are pastors and two of us were not. And we talked about what, what was sin. What is sin? How do we define sin? We all settled on the fact that sin is anything that separates us from God. But if Dawn's Jesus, and Betty's got Jesus in her, is it sin anything that separates me from Betty? Or from Ricardo, or from Lisa Dice back there? Or from my neighbor who is really loud and annoying? <laughs> Or from the people that I think are so very different? Isn't that the sin? Isn't sin the othering and saying, well, I'm not them, and they're not God? When in fact, Jesus says they're me, and I'm them, and we dwell in one another. He loved his disciples enough. And I, you know, coming from chaplaincy, I think, wow. I mean, people have beautiful death experiences, right? But they die. And then they don't get to stay around and comfort those that are grieving their loss. Jesus died a brutal death, a painful death, because he loved the world. Not just on an individual level. Creation and animals and enemies. And then he came back to comfort 
those folks that were going to carry on his legacy. How beautiful it would be a pastor friend passed away um, in May, and her services were yesterday, and people from all over the country, they live-streamed her um, service. Oh, they're weeping. It was crazy. And, like, these big-time preachers that I have this sort of enamored fangirl sort of thing are weeping in Chattanooga, right? If she could have comforted them and sat with them to comfort them of her death, they would have been fine. But she was gone. Jesus came back to comfort them. Those that betrayed him. Those that didn't do right by him. Poor Judas, he didn't make it. That's the saddest part because I think Jesus would have loved him anyway. He would have loved him into it. It would have been okay. And poor Judas died by suicide. And I don't think even Jesus didn't want that for him. So the beauty of the ascension is that it didn't happen right after the resurrection. It happened 40 days later. There was so much love in that 40 days. So much love when Mary said, I think that's the gardener. When the angel said, woman, why are you weeping? She said, well, they've taken my Lord. And the question really is, why are you weeping? I'm right here with you. And I think that's the thing, right? The Ascension Sunday message is there's so much love. And I wonder, when we name victims of shootings or bombings or the person that went in there and did that horrible thing is also a victim, right? The hate that they must have had, the life that they must have lived, to need to do that. That's why now we say died by suicide instead of committed suicide in mental health. Because it's not, it's not a criminal act. We don't want to criminalize somebody that was already in so much pain. So I think it's just really, for me, the body of Christ is preparing to be born next week. And if we can remember how generative this time is, we go from lamenting and sacrificing over Lent to being loved on by our Savior. For we get an extra week. I don't even know how that happened liturgically. But we get loved on by a Christ and a church that had so much love. Of course the church was born out of that love. Of course something beautiful happened after that. The Savior rose after a horrific death and came back to love on a world that killed him. Of course people spoke in tongues. Of course a beautiful missional fire burned within a church to create something generative. 
What a beautiful opportunity. We have for congregations like ourselves to recommit to our divining mission into the world for the love of the world. How do we, as new disciples, take that generative energy of love to recommit ourselves to our own mission statement, which is nourishing bodies and souls with the love of God? Can we be a church on fire for that? As much as we get on fire talking about things we disagree about, things we're angry about, if there's a blue line on the copier. I don't know. I think so. I thought enough that I left my home, a family I loved, my daughter's back in Greensboro. Clergy from across our region came to worship and support this, our collective call, to be on fire for love and worship and nourishing bodies and souls with the love of God. Can we be on fire with that love? I don't know, y'all. It's the choice we have to make in the coming days, every hour. We get to make that decision again. But I think that's the imagination that Jesus had for us. I think it's about love. Nothing else. Sounds really simple. It's a choice. Every action. Whether we withhold it or whether we offer it. And I had one of those bracelets. I don't know how many of y'all had it. It was all the different colors when you made them at camp. But it was the what would Jesus do? He would love. And it looks different in every context. But that is the We are of this world just as Jesus was and is about the work in and of this world. We know what our mission is. Nothing could be more connected to the work of Christ as we move forward as a church. Let's remind ourselves of the work of Christ, which is connected to one another, both in here and out there, to our neighbors, and of those we other. Amen. Amen.